I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Hello, welcome back to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer, and this week's a solo show. I haven't done this for quite a few weeks now, over months And I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk to you about something that's very prescient for me at the moment, which is well-being in the workplace. And this kind of links up with an event that we're running. So if you're London-based, tune in at the end of the show and I'm going to talk to you about the event we're running, which is all about well-being in the workplace. But it's really topical at the moment. Quite a few business leaders are publishing articles in the media around well-being and what they're doing within their particular companies. So I thought it'd be a good show to record, really, and, and kind of introduce what well-being in the workplace is, talk about some of the problems and explore some of the solutions. Many of you listening will work within corporate organisations, so you'll be aware of the difficult sort of strains on mental health as well as physical health that can come from stress and overwork. And maybe you're one of these people that has that in check, and maybe not. So hopefully either way you'll get something from this show. But let me start with what my personal interest is in this and why wellbeing is something that I'm so keen on. And really my story starts in March 2012. I was working for a market data company in the city of London, and my career up until then had spanned about 17 years by this point. But my feelings of disenfranchisement, unfulfillment and boredom had escalated in really the second half of my career. And I found I was self-medicating against increasing stress levels with alcohol, lots of it on a daily basis. I was drinking anything up to a bottle and a half or even three bottles of wine a day. So an extraordinary amount of alcohol. That was a big part of my burnout story. And I also found myself looking at the little clock on the right-hand side of my PC, wishing the hours away until five o'clock on Friday came, which is just no way to live. I felt like I was wasting my life, bouncing from payday to payday and living in an increasingly unsustainable way. And things came to a head one afternoon in March, which I still remember really clearly. I was crossing over London Bridge, having left a client meeting and had just received bad news about a deal I was expecting to get, which would enable me to hit my sales target. And it was really important that I hit that number. But my client had just informed me that the deal had fallen through and this was going to leave me in a really difficult position in regards to my future at that company. So as I crossed back over London Bridge to the station, I accepted that my city career was probably over. I was burned out, chronically abusing alcohol, several stone overweight. And in addition to that, I felt that everything I was doing and saying lacked authenticity. I wasn't dressing the way I wanted to dress. I wasn't mixing with the people that I associated and related to. It was really time for a drastic change. So by the time I got home, I decided to resign. I emailed in my resignation on the Sunday, which was accepted on Monday morning. And that was it. I was now free, but unemployed and with very little in my savings account. And it was a frightening time because basically I'd resigned with no clear plan about what I was going to do next. But one thing I was clear about is that I knew what I was doing at that point in time in that company didn't in any way match my values. Health is one of my values. Honesty is one of my values. Doing something that allows me to make a meaningful contribution is part of my values. And being available to others, uh, really being present and available for others is another one. And what I was doing for a living and the way I was living my life meant none of those values. And that takes its toll on both your mind and body. It's toxic to every cell in your body to keep it something you're essentially fighting against, whatever that thing is. But the problem was timing. But I eventually had to accept that there's never a good time to leave a guaranteed and decent salary. So I just did it and decided to figure out the rest once I'd recovered some of my mental and physical health. Health for me had to become above everything else. And I needed to live that and not just say it. 
So I took some time out to rest and recover and realised that what I wanted to do was really at the intersection of two things, business and health. Now I know drinking copious amounts of alcohol and staying up late several nights a week isn't healthy in any way, but I did try and maintain good health, contradictory as that might sound. So I regularly exercised and walked for at least 45 minutes a day. In reality, all I was probably doing is just treading water in terms of weight gain and probably not doing my heart any good at all. Now, the other thing I was very interested in is business. So I explored ways that I could intersect health and business, and that was the genesis of Body Shot as an idea. But the reality was that my personal circumstances were far from ideal for setting up a business, and I had some important health issues that needed sorting out. I knew the first thing I needed to do was make an investment in my health. The problem was I had no cash behind me, so I chose to put several thousand pounds worth of investment in my health on a credit card. And of course, that felt scary at first because I had no income, so no certainty about when I could repay the debt. I also thought about deferring the investment to a better time, but ultimately I felt it couldn't wait. There often isn't a better time, and I knew that investing in my health simply had to be the most important thing, so I committed the time, money and emotion into getting healthy. And it was more than worth it. Once my health improved, I signed up to train as a personal trainer, another sizable expense that I put on a credit card, because I knew an investment in the business would soon reap dividends in terms of sales. And as it turned out, I very quickly recouped that money. I also knew if I was healthy enough to build and run a business, then I would be able to generate the sales that would soon repay that 7,000 plus investment I'd made in my health. At the same time as making that investment, I committed to change. I really focused on why I wanted to change. Why was I making this health investment for myself? And why was I building this business? And more importantly, why was the time now to do it? I'd wanted to change for several years, but it hadn't happened. And I felt it was important to explore why now was the right time. Had I really had enough of my old behaviours and did I want the change once I'd realised what it entailed, the sacrifices, the willpower and dedication it involves? And the answer for me was yes. I also understood that successful people invest in themselves, so I got a coach to ensure I stayed fit. In actual fact, I've had a personal trainer for over a decade now and always will. And later on down the line, I hired a business coach and a public speaking coach to ensure I was at my best. So that really is the background to my story. And from 2012 to 2014, the company Body Shop progressed from me being a PT to a small team of personal trainers. My own health transformed as well. I lost three and a half stone, predominantly through avoiding alcohol and sugary drinks, eating a diet tailored to my genetics, becoming much more physically active, getting lots of daily life movement, cycling or walking instead of taking public transport. And obviously was getting fitter from the PT work that I was doing at the time as well. I also started eating healthy food prioritising provenance over price and eating locally sourced and organic produce wherever possible. In the past, I would have eaten ready meals and thought that was healthy. But that said, all those changes were not immediate. All this happened slowly and gradually over the last six years. And the way I went about it is to identify the two or three things that I wanted to change and cement those new habits into my lifestyle. And by the way, those things can be super small, almost so small that you might think they wouldn't make a difference. But those small changes over time add up, and that's exactly what happened with my health. It's a long game, basically. So my diet now is 90% good. I make sleep my number one priority, and I get lots of daily life movement, which I consider to be the secret weapon for overall fitness. I use the same principles for business. Try things, see what works, think of it as a long game. And crucially, I make sure I'm fit for the rigors of business. So I make sure my health is a top priority. So that's a bit of background on, on my personal story. And that's where my my interest in well-being has come from, really. I've been through the corporate life. I understand the pressures that people are under. I understand the the, kind of the lifestyle, the culture that pervades in the city, but also within companies all over the country, all over the world, in fact. 
And whilst some of the numbers I'm going to talk about shortly do relate to the UK, this is not a UK problem. The way that we're working people in our organisations is common across the world. The lack of real attention to well-being is common across the world. So let's talk about what well-being is. It's really a state of being comfortable, healthy or happy. That's a dictionary definition of well-being. And part of well-being is mental health. This is the kind of underappreciated, although awareness is growing, of mental health. And the World Health Organization defines mental health as a state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and is able to make a contribution to his or her community. So that is well-being, and I think that definition works really well in the context that we're going to be talking about. And well-being in the workplace specifically includes, in my opinion, a job that's challenging, rewarding, fulfills a clear need or purpose, and has a support network within it. So when things aren't good, you've got a line of command that you can follow in order to flag, actually, I need some help here. And that's not just help around mental or physical health, but just help fulfilling that job, fulfilling that purpose. I think well-being is also feeling part of something, a team, a common cause, or an overall sense of purpose. And I want to read you something from my book, Rise and Shines, my first book, which you can get on Amazon. And it's all about the Whitehall studies. And the Whitehall studies were a seminal research project conducted from 1967 onwards. The original study was designed to investigate social determinants of health amongst British male civil servants between the age of 20 and 64. Specifically, they were looking for cardiovascular disease prevalence and mortality rates. 18,000 males were examined during a lengthy study which spanned over a decade, and what they found was a strong association between grade levels of civil servant and mortality rates from a range of causes. The men in the lowest grades had a higher mortality rate, three times as high than those in the highest grade. So in effect, what they discovered was that workers' stress was not caused by greater responsibility or higher function, but rather by the degree of control the worker feels they have. In other words, it's the correlation between effect and reward which influences stress levels and therefore our health. So finding a job where you feel you have some degree of control and a sense of reward is therefore vital to maintaining good health. And I think that's fascinating. And what it's basically saying is the point that I've just made. If you feel you've got control, you feel you're in a job that's purposeful and rewarding and you have a degree of autonomy and you've got the the confidence to be left alone to perform that task, you're going to have better health. That is very interesting. Other things that are important for well-being, a place to work that's safe and supportive, a place where there's an infrastructure that if you need help, you can get it, a place where good health is both possible and encouraged, and a place where employees at all levels can be their best selves at work. So I think increasingly we're going to see a separation from the work person and the home person where the two can bleed into each other a little bit more. As it is, we have work bleeding into home. What we'd really need to know is maybe there's a bit of a two-way traffic and that people don't need to put on their, their work faces and come in, but actually they can talk a bit more about what's going on for them because it's going to affect work. So if you create a culture where somebody can come in and say, actually, things aren't good for me at home. I might need a little bit of slack here or a bit more support here. Or would it be okay if I did this at home this week? And I think if a company can wake up to that and allow people to bring their true selves into work, not a whole heap of baggage, but just to be able to say, actually, this is going on for me and it's affecting my work and I want to make you aware of that. Can you help? That I also think is going to be important. Now, well-being is a real buzzword at the moment, but in my opinion, few companies are doing anything really meaningful. But I do think this is going to change. So Ariana Huffington, I often use this quote, said this a few years ago. This is a tough economy. 
Stress reduction and mindfulness don't just make us happier and healthier. They're a proven competitive advantage for any business. And that's exactly what I think is going to happen. I think companies are no longer going to attract and retain talent by offering corner offices, by cars, decent financial packages, healthcare. I think healthcare will be a key part of it. And the other stuff might be nice to have, but I think it'll be about well-being. It'll be, well, how do you look after me when I'm under a lot of stress? Is there the opportunity for me to ebb and flow according to the demands of my job and not be at peak performance all year round? What happens when I need to take my child to an appointment or my cat to the vet? You know, is there the flexibility to do that? Do I have the opportunity to go out and use the gym when it suits me rather than just in my lunch break? When I come back to the office sweaty, you know, fixing my tie or blow drying my hair in a corner of the office because I need to be back by a certain time. So I think well-being is going to be the way that companies differentiate. I absolutely believe that. Now, what are the problems facing companies today? When we talk about well-being, what's the other side of that? What are the issues? Well, I think the first one is absenteeism. So according to the CIPD, the Chartered Institute of Personal and Development's website, an average of 6.6 days per year per employee are lost to absenteeism. So absenteeism really is just an unexplained absence. And the most common way of, of investigating that absenteeism and getting employees back to work is through a return to work interview. And I wonder if that's the most effective way of doing it. I'm not sure about that. I think if we can provide tools that empower employees to nurture and maintain good health in the first place, that might reduce absenteeism. And I'm actually working with an organisation at the moment. They have won the Times 100 Wellbeing, Best Company to Work For, for Wellbeing Prize. They were at number 11 last year. They've won that two years running. I think they were just outside the top 10 and now they're number 11. And one of the things that they've done is they've provided their employees with a platform. And this platform is an online platform that my company has supplied. And it's two and a half hours of really high value content, talking to people around sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, fitness, what we call the six signals of health. And part of their absenteeism reduction program is to do some workshops, which we've done with them, do some general awareness around health, and then provide them with this online platform so that users can access that. They can educate themselves on these different aspects of health, honing in on certain areas if they want to. And time will tell what sort of results that gets. So we're now monitoring that to see if it reduces absenteeism. But programs like that, where you're not just telling people you need to be in, we need to get those absentee days down, but actually giving employees tools that they can nurture and maintain good health, that will be the difference. And one of the other problems that we see is presenteeism. So this is turning up when you shouldn't. Competitive presenteeism. Many of us have worked in offices where you see a person who's first in, hangs their coat over their chair, but you don't see much of them during the day. They're kind of in and out. They may be surfing the web and they should be working, but they're last to leave. And often the perception of those people is they're the hardest workers because they competitively present themselves. They're there but how productive are they actually? I heard somebody the other day say that they love hiring return to work mums who want to come back on a part-time basis because there would be no one who's more incentivized to finish their work by three o'clock than a mother who's got to pick a child up at 3.25. So there'll be no coming in, coat on the back of the chair, mucking around during the day. Those people are likely, and this is the same for fathers, those people are likely to be very efficient, very, very efficient with their time. Now, again, according to the CIPD's website, 86% of companies notice examples of presenteeism in the last 12 months. So that's a huge number of people just turning up when they shouldn't. And this includes turning up when you're sick. I've worked with lots of people turning up when they're sick, 
partly out of ego, I need to be here, I'm, I'm important, I've got things to do. They should be at home. And ultimately, if you've got a culture that encourages presenteeism, you're also going to have a culture of people competing with each other to come into the office, of not taking breaks when they should, of bringing germs and disease into the office, and very often bringing negativity as well, because they're resentful they're being there, yet they feel they have to turn up. And that's something that definitely needs addressing in company cultures. Leaveism is another one. I love this one. This is people working when they should be on leave. And two thirds of the companies that the CIPD surveyed noticed leaveism going on with their culture. So an example of this, I can remember this distinctly. It must be about 10 years ago. I was on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean enjoying holiday. It was actually a day cruise. I threw out my towel across a sun lounger at the very front of the boat next to a woman who was on a Blackberry. And then just as I got settled, she picked up a phone and she started making a conference call to organise a sales conference for her company later on that summer. Just loud as you like, on that sun lounger, chatting through this business. And at the end of the call, I said, do you mind? I mean, that's exactly what I've come here to get away from. And you're doing this call on the deck of your, you know, on a day cruise. And she was very apologetic. But nonetheless, that's a perfect example of leaveism. She was on holiday. She had a family at the back of the boat. So that's a great example of leaveism. And there's a lot that we can actually do. But only one in four of those companies that CIPD talked to said they were actually taking action against leaveism. Now, some of this sits with employees, employees thinking you have to stay connected rather than it being demanded of them. So I think we as employees have a certain obligation to think, well, do I need to check that email? I'm on holiday. I need to ring fence this time. It's for my partner, my family or for me or for all those things. I am not going to bring that BlackBerry on the boat. I'm not going to take my phone with me to the pool. I'm not going to answer email. I'll just wait for it and come home to it. The other thing I notice amongst all the people I've worked with is holidays booked to come back on a Saturday so that an individual can sit down on a Sunday and clear through their emails. Or I often hear people saying, actually, I'm going to take an hour a day to do my email while I'm on holiday so I don't come back to a deluge of it. And that, I think, is a great shame as well because it just means we don't disconnect. Work is always there if it's for an hour a day or you're thinking, God, Sunday, I really want to get back on the laptop and just clear that email out. And email is such a funny one. It's like a Sisyphean task, really, emptying your, your inbox. Sisyphus is part of Greek mythology. And as a punishment, he was made to roll a boulder up a hill just to let it roll back down again. Roll a boulder up a hill, let it roll back down again. And that went on and on and on. And that was his punishment. And if you think about it, trying to empty an email inbox is just the same thing. You can clear it down on Sunday, but by Tuesday it's full again. So it's almost a redundant task. We need to find a better way of managing email or indeed just sending and consuming less email. And in France, they brought in a new labour law in January of 2017 called the Right to Disconnect. And this basically stated that any organisation that had 50 or more employees had to negotiate new out-of-office email guidelines with their staff. I think that is also a brilliant idea. So one company cuts off email at 10.30 and it opens it up again at 6. Now, it still enables you to work pretty much up until bedtime and be up early to be checking email again. But it's a start and I think it needs to be applauded. That's certainly not universal across in the UK. So that's one thing we can look at. The other thing, the issue, I think the big problem we've got in organisations now is around mental health. This is something I've spoken about a lot The CIPD found that 37% of the organisations that they spoke to reported stress-related absences have gone up. 51% said awareness of mental health had increased. 
compared to 31% in 2016. So that's a good statistic. And 55% reported common mental health conditions going up compared to 41% in 2016. So that's not so good. Although perhaps it's that awareness has gone up and that we have seen, I think, a bit of a change in terms of the attitude towards mental health in companies in the recent years. So maybe there's more reporting of it because people feel more open and able to talk about it. I'm going to link in the show notes to a previous episode that I did with a chap called Jeff McDonald. Jeff is an ex-VP of Unilever. He had a very bad depression himself. He recovered from it. But what he now does, he's left Unilever and now he he makes it his life's mission, really, to remove the stigma of mental health in the working world. So he has a very, very great movement called Minds at Work. I would link to that in the show notes, Minds at Work, because that's a very powerful movement. They meet up in London every few months, also in Edinburgh and some other places as well. And Jeff actually ran an event, it was a year or so ago, where he got six C-suite leaders into a room to talk about how mental health has affected them and their organisations. So for some of them, it was their personal experience. For others, it was maybe a a son or a daughter or an employee. But I thought that was a seminal moment, really, in terms of of mental health championing, because no one had really at that level spoken about it before. And that's that's what Jeff organised. So have a listen to his podcast as well, where we really talk a lot about mental health in the workplace, if that's a particular area of interest. But that is a big issue, I think. So why is wellbeing in the workplace matter? Well, I think first and foremost, it's the right thing to do. Ethically, morally, it's important to look after your people. Richard Branson said, if you look after your people, they'll look after your customers. So just in terms of doing the right thing, of building a team of people that are happy to be there, they feel that they can bring their best selves to work, they can prioritise health as well as, uh, you know, always blending and intersecting their, their own health and well-being with their overall sense of purpose. And that sense of purpose is your organisation's purpose. Those two things, you know, need to intersect A healthy and happy workforce, I think, create a culture that increases employee retention and engagement. And that's a competitive advantage. That's a huge competitive advantage. If you can attract talent into your company because it's a company that is very well known for looking after its people, for not making unreasonable demands, for cutting you some slack when you're feeling the pressure. And some companies now have things like unlimited vacation time. So you can just take as much holiday as you need to. But also a culture where maybe travel is encouraged, where you can use the gym anytime you want. I mean, there's loads of things that you could do to create a culture where people want to be there at work. The third thing is having a mutually inclusive duty of care. By that, I mean the employee has a duty of care to ensure that they're fit for the rigors of business. And the employer has a duty of care to ensure that they're reasonable in their expectations and creating a working environment that does not preclude health or well-being. And I think that is really important. And that's got to start from the top. So senior leaders, senior managers, the C-suite, the board have got to be demonstrating that they're doing these things and not just saying it's okay to take a break. Don't worry about responding to that email. And then the person logs on in the morning and sees that they've missed out on a huge email chain, including with the boss. So it's got to come from the top and it's got to be reinforced that way. So from a practical perspective, just some ideas on how organisations can become, can prioritise wellbeing. Firstly, ensure you have an environment that's set up for an active day. So there's a lot of talk now. The headline is sitting is the new smoking. Well, a very simple way of doing that is to give people a 25 pound device. It's a concertina laptop table that converts a desk into a standing desk. Easy. Maybe having a gym on site or at least a garden area where people can go out and get some fresh air, 
be around plants, be around nature. That thing is really important, having a policy of stairs, climbing the stairs rather than the escalators. So a simple little nudge, like just having some stickers, footprint stickers that take you from reception to the stairs rather than the lifts can nudge people into being more active. Maybe you have fitness trackers and you set up a little competition as to who's covered most ground. You could also link employee benefits and bonuses to their health. So one idea is to have a health charter. It's something that's drawn up by the employer. So this is what I expect you to do in terms of your health. And this is what I will do in return. And link that to people's appraisals. So you're not only appraising their performance at work in terms of the job they're doing and the quality, but you're also appraising how well they're keeping themselves fit for the rigors of business. But also having an area with natural light and windows, very important for people's circadian rhythms and sleep is super important for their performance. Possibly even having chronotyping around working hours. So if you're a morning person, you come in at eight. If you're an evening person, you come in at 10. You do the same number of hours, but it suits you better. I'm not pulling in an evening person into an 8 a.m. meeting and wondering why they're groggy. It makes a lot more sense to let people work to their chronotypes. Having some rules around email after hours, working at weekends, again, Maybe you just have a policy of no working at weekends, no emailing out of hours, and the email server shut down. Email times, emails destroyed during vacation times. So a German company, Daimler, have a policy that when you're on holiday, you don't receive an email. It's called the Mail on Holiday Program. And I have heard a few other companies in Europe implementing this as well. So the way it works is you go off on leave and you do not receive an email, even if you check it, until the morning you return back to work. If I send you an email, I'll simply get a notice to say that you're on holiday, this email's been destroyed, and to get back in touch when you're back at work and giving a date. So that's just a handful of ideas of how we can start to prioritise well-being in the working world. Now, if anything here has interested you and you can get to London on Tuesday, 3rd of July, we're running an event called Increasing Employee Retention and Engagement. What part does well-being play and what I play and why does it matter? The event is free because we've partnered with Pinsent Mason's law firm. So it'll be held at their offices in Crown Place in the City of London, and it'll run from 8am to 9.30. So we are currently almost oversubscribed. So I'm going to post a link to the event in the show notes. If you're in London, you can get to London on Tuesday, 3rd of July. I really recommend coming down to hear that. I'll be presenting on why wellbeing is important. We'll be throwing out a load of ideas. And Pinsent Masons will also be talking about the legal implications of not prioritising wellbeing. So I think it's going to be a really, really important event. Come down to that if you can. And if you're interested in anything else that I've talked about, you want to find out more about what we do for corporates, you can jump on our website, bodyshotperformance.com, and then click on the corporate tab. And we'll put links to that in the show notes as well. And finally, if you're listening to this and you're somebody that's curious about your health, you can take our Health IQ quiz. So jump on the website again. And on the homepage, there is a What's My Health IQ? Take our test. I'll put a link to that. So click on there. And it'll ask you 24 questions, takes about two to three minutes to do. And at the end of that, you get a scorecard and you get a free 39 page report built around those six signals that I mentioned earlier, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion and fitness. So there's a load of interesting content to be got from that. And you could always get in touch with us afterwards to arrange a discovery session or a call without one of our health experts. And you can sign up for our newsletter on the website as well. So lots of things that you can follow up on. Always interested in your feedback. So if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so directly to Leanne, L-E-A-N-N-E, at bodyshotperformance.com or via the website, bodyshotperformance.com. That's it from me. I'll be back with another great guest. In the meantime, have a great week. 
Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com and click on take the test. And it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39 page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com and take our test. Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.